Okay. Now we're down to the serious business. I'd like to have everyone's attention so the speaker at least have your attention for the first five minutes before you goes off or something. Uh, uh, Cy Nyman is a newspaper man, Harry. A former first guy. Cy Nyman. First guy. He's an author, lecturer, public relations expert, and a seeker of truth. You know, when you're a reporter or an editor or a historian or anthropologist, you seek truth. Seeking truth is all right and it's no crime, but what the hell do you do with it after you get it? Uh, this is one of the real problems. Some people stretch it and they expand it and they use it and they twist it. And basically, to be a good reporter, to be a good historian, and to be a good writer, the basic ingredient, you have to be an honest man yourself. You have to be articulate, you have to be intelligent, you have to know how to handle that truth. So this is exactly the type of man you have to handle the truth. truth. And a man who's a colleague of mine in the communications business, and I'm very proud to present to you gentlemen tonight our main speaker, Mr. S.I. Nyman, who will speak on Judah Benjamin, the mystery man of the Confederacy. Thank you. After that, I'd be well advised to quit while I'm winners. Presuming to talk to this group on the Civil War puts me in a class with a fellow who married a six-time divorcee. I doubt if I have anything new, surprising, or unexpected to offer. As a matter of fact, I sometimes have the eerie feeling that the whole Civil War was a figment of Ralph Newman's vivid imagination, and that he had those great monuments and battle markers made out of paper mache that he staged the Battle of Gettysburg, just as Senator Douglas says Abraham Lincoln faked the evidence in the trial of Duff Armstrong. But I do wish that Ralph, who made Lincoln speak a hundred years after his assassination, could do the same for Judah Philip Benjamin, so that he could supply the missing pages of Confederate history. For the benefit of those of you who are among the millions who did not buy my book, <laughs> let me begin by entering a disclaimer of the authorship of the book's subtitle, Mystery Man of the Confederacy. The publisher thought that one out. One academician, what the hell of one, academician, suggested that the only mystery about it was why I wrote the book in the first place. Well, that critic should have counted his blessings. The original manuscript ran 230,000 words. Only 59,000 escaped the editor's system. Well, you see, I have a surplus of 171,000 words to palm off on you tonight. <laughs> Among the material that wound up on the cutting room floor, was a quotation from Beckles Wilson, the biographer of John Slidell. To introduce Mr. Benjamin, I'd like to quote it. He said, As for Judah Philip Benjamin, surnamed the brains of the Confederacy, 
He, serene, rubiconed, industrious, went steadily on. What a kaleidoscopic career. West Indian Jew, United States Senator, Confederate Secretary of State, English Queen's Consul. He became a domiciled Frenchman at the last, the sole triumphant survivor of the last cause. I question if Benjamin was the sole triumphant survivor. That, it seems to me, best describes Robert E. Lee. But Benjamin did survive to build another great fortune, to thumb his nose at his enemies, North and South, to be honored at last by all the leaders of the British Bar, and to die in bed in a great Paris mansion. Now, I protested the subtitle, Mystery Man, feebly, I must confess, because the publisher is also a client of mine. But there is no particular mystery about Benjamin's public life as a United States Senator, or as Confederate Attorney General, or Secretary of War, or Secretary of State. The only mystery is why he was so bent on destroying the very documents that might clarify his role in the Civil War. For it was an honorable and a vital role. I believe it would be fair to say that Benjamin had no sense of history. In his own words, I have read so many American biographies which reflected only the passions and prejudices of their writers that I do not want to leave behind me letters and documents to be used in such a work about myself. And that's about the nub of it. He never seemed able to distinguish between the history of the Confederacy and his own personal involvement in it. A favorite cliche about Benjamin is that he entered into a conspiracy of silence. But it takes more than one person to make a conspiracy. And Benjamin, for all his personal charm and love of social companionship, was strictly a loner. But we must not fault Benjamin's contribution to the Confederate cause or his antebellum career in the United States Senate. Because certainly few men of his time made greater contributions. Some of his speeches are still printed in the anthologies of the great American orators. And he lived in an age of great American orators. He became one of the wealthiest men in the South. And few lawyers before or since have approached the number of his successful appearances before the Supreme Court. Now, some persist in comparing him in stature with other important men of the Jewish faith. Well, for whatever that's worth, he completely overshadows most, if not all, with whom he may be compared. But ironically, Benjamin went to his grave neither a statesman nor an American, not even a Jew. There was much mystery about Benjamin, but that did not concern his public papers or his official acts. In these, he was a prolific writer of letters, dispatches, and orders, and we have a full record of them. The controversy over these documents 
seems to me, lies in their interpretation. And whether much of what he wrote simply parroted Jefferson Davis's opinion, certainly the style in which these papers were written was Benjamin. But as our good friend, the late Otto Eisenhimmel, said in my book's foreword, there was much more to Benjamin than these proofs of his many talents, and thereby hangs a tale about the good doctor. Oh, he very graciously consented to write that foreword after reading the original manuscript of 230,000 words. When the editors, in their infinite wisdom, cut the manuscript down to 59,000 words, they were very careful not to tamper with what O.E. had written. And his foreword was based mainly on seven chapters of the manuscript, six of which were later deleted. <laughs> when the book came out, O.E.'s gentle understanding and fatherly comments could be heard at a distance of a mile <laughs> without electronic amplification. Then, to add insult to injury, I understand the book has outsold Eisenschimmel's last one, which, I might add, makes me tremble for the future of American letters. I think the most hilarious feature of this initial set to with one of the editors was his memo to me, hinting that some of the things I had to say about Benjamin might be construed by the Anti-Defamation League as anti-Semitic. I answered that by sending the editor a profile photo of myself. <laughs> Once you've written a biography, there's a strong temptation to write a second one. Partly to explain what you meant in the first one, and partly because such a book brings out a wealth of new material from volunteer collaborators who invariably know much more about the subject than you do. And I mean that sincerely. Occasionally, someone reveals source material that has definite historical value. By coincidence, one of these came to light only a few weeks after Mike Lerner wrote a review of Judah Benjamin in which he referred to, and I quote, Benjamin's vision of a confederacy that would include the 11 Confederate states plus all of Mexico and the Central American republics as far south as the Canal Zone. Well, that was the subject of one of the chapters in my original manuscript that was chopped down to about 100 words. Of course, Mike couldn't have known that. The editor's comment was that this chapter was pure conjecture. Well, I don't know how pure it was, but it was based on items in New Orleans newspapers of the 1840s when Benjamin was engaged in some stock promotions that would curl the hair of our present Securities and Exchange Commission. Anyway, a Pennsylvania lady sent me a copy of a letter written in French by Benjamin to a man in Baton Rouge, who apparently wanted to know what his chances were of getting any money back on one of Benjamin's Central American Railroad Canal promotions. Benjamin wrote, and I quote, We see in the Tehantepec, that was one of his deeds, the gateway to a new world, a great empire stretching 
from Kentucky to Cape Horn, where, freed from the shackles and the obligations we are expected to fulfill at the North, we have the benefit of great unexplored riches. Now, Benjamin may have been merely comforting a shorn lamb, but those sentiments are echoed in speeches he made in New Orleans at about the same time but which did not go so far as to hint at a separation from the North. And the more one studies Benjamin's speeches and letters, the more the conviction grows that Benjamin never considered the United States as anything but a simple partnership of states, a union of convenience rather than a federal government in perpetuity. As early as the 1840s, he was making speeches about a time, and I quote, when the whole South will coalesce and form a single party for the protection of our hearths, of our families, of our homes. Now, this may have been pure political bombast, or he may have believed sincerely that the North and the South had too little in common justify a permanent union. It's interesting to speculate what Benjamin's southern empire might have become had it ever come into being. Those unexplored riches he foresaw would now include the great oil fields, cotton, sugar, rice, tobacco, gold, wheat, silver, copper, iron, uranium, the vast fruit lands, the cattle country of our southwest and South America, potentially one of the greatest powers of the earth. Benjamin had made a trip to South America and to California as a lawyer, and he had promoted enterprises in Mexico and Central America, so he was familiar with those countries. It's a highly unpopular view, particularly among members of my own faith, who want desperately for Benjamin to be accepted as a folk hero, an American patriot, to say that there is little evidence that he was ever an American in the modern sense, or that he considered loyalty to the United States as having precedence over his loyalty to his adopted state, Louisiana. Yet no one seems to take offense at the fact that Robert E. Lee considered his first loyalty to be to Virginia. Benjamin threw in his lot with the South that had nurtured him, and made him rich and successful. He seems to have considered any other obligation in the same terms as he considered the interest of his law clients. Nothing went deep, a contemporary said of him. I think many things went deep. But throughout his life, he had schooled himself against any display of emotion. His speeches show it. They are clear, concise, logical but somehow they seldom seem to catch fire. Even in his relations with his Catholic Creole wife, Natalie, and here I touch on a subject that's near and dear to Mike Lerner's art, he put up with a lifetime of infidels. That's Benjamin I'm talking about, not Mike. <laughs> Yet we find only one instance when she provoked him to an outburst, and this surprisingly was made to a man with whom he was not intimate, Senator David U. Lee of Florida. 
What is the riddle of Natalie St. Martin Benjamin? How could a man like Benjamin, who was capable of staging towering rages when he felt his honor was questioned, who once challenged Jefferson Davis to a duel, but on the evidence he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn of ten paces, how could such a man restrain himself when practically everybody in official Washington knew of Natalie's extramarital vengeance? Shall we put it down to pride, a refusal to acknowledge even to himself that he was not the master of any situation, even in his own home? Zena Del Mar has written a beautiful story of the Benjamins' great love affair. And perhaps, in all charity, this should be the remembered version. The truth, however, is that the lady had a roving eye, and to put it delicately, uh, was available. Several southern ladies took delight in mentioning it in their diaries. The more one studies Benjamin, the more one is inclined to conclude that he had the faculty of locking his emotions up within himself without explosion, and that even his rare public explosions were in some measure contrived. Perhaps in his scale of values, an unfaithful wife was a personal private affair, and as long as she chose to spend most of her very married life away from him in Paris, this was one of the things he could lock up within himself. In time, his relations with her were diminished to his rare overseas visits. The things which did provoke outbursts from Benjamin led credence to the belief that he was a good actor. For instance, he was reported as livid with rage when he was accused of having been expelled from Yale as a common thief. An accusation that was made, incidentally, more than a third of a century after the alleged offense. Yet there is some evidence of guilt, possibly not enough to convince a modern jury, but certainly enough to make note of it. Yet this short passage in my book stirred up a great deal of righteous indignation and correspondence. But certainly men have gone on to the United States Senate after similar youthful indiscretion, even in our own time. And it is not my province to rewrite history. Second-guessing my own book, incidentally, I said in it that in some ways there was a bit of a prude about Benjamin in later life, as when he spurned the services of a New Orleans-born Parisian spy because she was, as he put it, a young lady of dubious morals. Well, in the stillborn chapters of my book, I gave the lady's own version of her relations with Mr. Benjamin, quoting from an obviously ghost-written pamphlet after she switched allegiance from the Confederacy to the Union. It seems that early in the war, she had a framed photograph of Benjamin on the mantel in her Paris apartment, which she claimed was a, a memento of her earlier days in New Orleans. Sometime in 1863, a captured Confederate dispatch from Benjamin to Sladell showed up in the American Embassy in Paris with Benjamin's reference to the lady's dubious morals. 
Having, having gone to great lengths to present Slidell to the emperor backstage of the theater where she was performing, the lady considered this a low blow and she promptly switched allegiance. This is the same lady, incidentally, in whose Paris apartment United States Ambassador Dayton suffered a fatal heart attack. In case any of you are interested in writing a Civil War version of Peyton Place. I mention this in passing, lest my book may have given you the impression that Benjamin was something of a capon. As a matter of fact, as a young man, he was handsome. And later, women, including Mrs. Jefferson Davis, found him fascinating. Now, mind you, I'm not starting rumors this late day. One of the most charming letters I received from readers came from a Pittsburgh lady of the Jewish faith who wrote somewhat plaintively, Why did you have to make Mr. Benjamin thought-bellied and only five feet six? I always pictured him as tall and handsome, and I don't think you needed to make him short and unattractive. Well, I reassured her that in the movie version, I would insist that Benjamin would be played by Tab Hunter, who was six feet three. <laughs> Benjamin has been accused of being difficult to get along with, particularly with the generals when he was Secretary of War. And that's a fair appraisal. And we could go further and say that the ones he offended most were those who didn't get along well with Jefferson Davis. The logical sequence. Benjamin was Davis's man, and he seems to have taken a perverse delight in wrapping the knuckles of the proud generals who disliked the president. But Benjamin's animosity toward Stonewall Jackson originated with himself, and he would gladly have booted Jackson out of the army, had not political pressure forced him to let up. Now perhaps that will give you some measure of Benjamin's capacity as Secretary of War possibly the only field in which he showed little or no aptitude. As a matter of fact, he went out of his way to write to General Beauregard when he took over the job. I quote, I am only a poor civilian who knows nothing of war. Yet a few months later, he was not only telling Beauregard what to do and how to do it, but he managed to alienate Beauregard to the point of animosity. And when the Confederacy suffered two crushing defeats within the few months Benjamin headed the War Department, and Congress was forming a political lynching party for him, he simply shrugged his shoulders and moved upstairs to the State Department with the blessings of his mentor, President Davis. There he was more in his element. And except for a tendency to overplay the cloak and dagger aspect of his job, he made a very credible showing, considering the heavy odds against the success of any Confederate diplomacy abroad. I've always felt that had Davis sent Benjamin to Paris instead of John Slidell, he would have had some chance of working out a deal of sorts with Napoleon III, for he was the same type of political horse trader as the emperor was, and Benjamin had quite a bit to trade with. When Slidell proved to be a bull in the diplomatic china shop, Benjamin had all the old world graces combined with what one of his enemies called oleogenous 
charm that would have made him right at home with the slippery Napoleon, devious diplomatic maneuvering. For despite all the glittering generalities with which the British diplomats blessed the Southern cause, England never budged off dead center. While France vacillated and nibbled at the Confederate state, up to the time it became a mortal certainty, certainty that the Confederacy was a lost cause. Then, too, Benjamin had a personal friend of great influence at the French court, Emile Erlanger, the leading French financier. If Benjamin could have had a free hand in Paris, as did Benjamin Franklin during our revolution, I believe he might have been able to euchre Napoleon III into circumventing the blockade and creating at least a diversionary action. While this might have cost the Confederacy some of its freedom of diplomatic action for a time, it could have given Lincoln and Seward some real headaches. All this is assuming, of course, that Davis would give anybody that much leeway, which I doubt. But had Davis pursued that, but had Benjamin pursued that course in person, he might have achieved a stalemate. And after the war, Benjamin and Davis, playing from a position of strength, could have dealt with Napoleon III in the time-honored formula of diplomacy, even to the point of joining with the United States and taking France out of Mexico. Certainly Benjamin was cynic and realist enough to have played it that way. I said that as Secretary of War, Benjamin was miscast. As Secretary of State, and came up against internal dissension, which has been called the war within a war. And in this, he followed the lead of Davis. Their dilemma was that they had to federalize the war effort with individual states whose avowed reason for breaking away from the old union was the protection of their state's rights. As you know, neither Davis nor Benjamin found the solution to that problem. As a matter of fact, neither of them even laid the groundwork for such an accommodation. But within those self-defeating frameworks, Benjamin did a good job and on balance must be rated as a successful Secretary of State. But one of the points that historians treat gingerly, or more often to choose to ignore, is the charge that Benjamin favored his co-religionists in issuing passes through the lines to the north, ostensibly to bring back much-needed medicine, and that these persons either failed to return or engaged in black marketeering. And by way of background, let me say that the relatively few Jews in this country in Civil War times did not always enjoy the full acceptance and equality that they have today. As witness Ulysses S. Grant's notorious general order expelling Jews as a class from the war zone, there were many outspoken anti-Semites. One in particular, J.B. Jones, the all-seeing Confederate War Department clerk and frustrated author, who seems to have classified as Jews everyone with a Germanic-sounding name. And he went to great pains to hint that all such persons issued passes through the lines were engaged in some nefarious business in which Benjamin had a hand. Somewhat nearer the truth 
is that Benjamin ordered passes issued to practically anyone who promised to bring back contraband, particularly badly needed medicine, and that many of Benjamin's secret agents used a half a dozen or more aliases, and they used sheaves of passes shuttling back and forth. Now, this business is often confused with the fact that Benjamin had some of his own cotton shipped out of the Confederacy during the war and was able to sell it and use the proceeds after the Confederacy collapsed. That's another matter. But there's no substantive evidence that Benjamin engaged in any hanky-panky in the matter of passes. As for favoring his co-religionists, as I pointed out earlier, many of my readers were disappointed that I didn't make a better Jew out of Benjamin. But not even Daniel Webster could do that, as Rabbi Wise reported in his memoirs. He appears to have been defensive and sensitive as to his faith, and one of his law clerks recalls that when the clerk inadvertently wrote Benjamin's first name as Judas, Benjamin exploded. Good God, isn't Judah Jewish enough for him? Whatever his problems with his wife, Natalie, there is no evidence that the difference in their faith ever came between. She remained a Catholic, and he was nominally a Jew, up to his dying day, when he accepted the last rites of the Catholic Church as Natalie wanted it. I did not mean to kill off Benjamin at this point. I'm merely following a pattern of taking up questions asked most frequently about Benjamin. In this connection, literally dozens of persons named Benjamin or Levi, that was Judah's mother's maiden name, have sought to trace their ancestry back to him. And sometimes this is bordered on the ridiculous. One of our well-known Civil War historians, not a member of this group, wrote me a nice folksy letter describing a conversation he had on board a train en route to California with a grandson of Benjamin. Now, this must have been a bar car because Benjamin's only child died without issue. There are, however, several descendants of Judah's brothers and sisters scattered about the country, and there are some in British Honduras. None of them, so far as I know, has any documents that shed any new light on their illustrious ancestor, or at least none of them has come forward with the exception of a great-grand-nephew. I suppose it would be more accurate to say I traced him down. Many years ago, I saw the original painting of Natalie Benjamin in the Civil War collection in New Orleans, and I kept the magazine's reproduction of it in my files. When it came time to publish my book, I wanted to use that illustration opposite one of Benjamin. I was told that the original painting had been returned to one Lionel Levy, the great-grandnephew. So there was no trace of him in the New Orleans directory. The librarian of one of the New Orleans papers told me that the last he'd heard of Levy, he was in the armed service. Well, a check of all the branches uncovered three Lionel Levy's, and none of them had ever heard of Benjamin. My young daughter solved the riddle. She suggested that Levy might have changed his name. A check of New Orleans Registrar's office verified this, and we finally ran him to earth in 
Washington, in a Washington, D.C. military hospital. He was obliging enough, but he couldn't lay his hands on the painting. That's the original Lady in Red that Dina Del Mar wrote about so beautifully. In order to get a clear reproduction of Natalie's portrait, I sent the magazine clipping to a New York portrait artist who reproduced it as I remembered the color. I then had the painting photographed, and this was a day or two before I received a note from my friend, the editor, telling me they decided not to use illustrations. <laughs> well, during the gestation period of writing such a book, the author gets some strange cravings, not for pickles and ice cream, but like my harebrained desire to follow the path of Benjamin's escape after he left Richmond with President Davis' party. I had read several references to a heavy trunk that Benjamin guarded during that part of his flight when he accompanied Davis. But it struck me as odd that a man who admittedly was wearing his only remaining suit of clothes when he left Richmond and who supposedly had burned all of his official files should have anything worth transporting in a trunk. Of course, this could mean only one thing that is to my fevered imagination. That was that Benjamin had saved a file of papers which might prove embarrassing to important persons in the North. For I had seen a reference to such papers in one of his Canadian agents' correspondence. Logically then, somewhere along the route, Benjamin had either turned these papers over to someone to ensure his escape, or they might still be preserved, possibly in the attic of an old home, or in LaGrange, Georgia, where he said he sent a trunk to his sister when he left Richmond. Well, at that time, I was on the payroll of William Randolph Hearst's feature in Wireson. And all of a sudden, the southeastern state's territory urgently needed my presence. So I carefully retraced the route of Davis and Benjamin's flight to Washington, Georgia, and then Benjamin's zigzag course to the southern tip of Florida. I stopped at every checkpoint mentioned in the accounts of the flight, and in each town I made inquiries about old trunks. Well, all I succeeded in doing was to arouse the curiosity of a newspaper man, who immediately put two and two together and came up with 22 which was that a damn Yankee was hot on the trail of the thousands or was it millions of dollars in gold that Davis took with him from the Confederate trace. The upshot of all that was while I didn't uncover a trace of the trunk, I did start the Danza treasury hunt in the history of style. And there was such a ransacking of old addicts the dust probably hasn't settled yet. I did get an offer of an old four-poster bed guaranteed to be the one that Benjamin had slept in. Whether with or without Natalie it was not stated. <laughs> one historian has said, presumably with a straight face, that Benjamin burned state papers in the fire that destroyed a portion of Richmond when it fell to the Federals. Well, you just picture, if you can, Benjamin, or for that matter, any other Confederate leader being anywhere near the fire when it began, or feeding secret papers to the flames. For the record, Benjamin was long gone before the fire broke out. 
and his whereabouts are pretty well documented from the time Davis heard that Sunday in church that Lee wanted him to abandon Richmond. I have seen no eyewitness statement that Benjamin burned anything but the end of one of his precious Havana cigars on the day. As a matter of fact, his office showed every ed evidence that Benjamin had his staff of four persons, including one slave on loan as a quarterback simply took off, leaving a supposedly secret code book behind. Now, I don't discount the possibility, even the probability, that secret papers were destroyed, but certainly nothing so dramatic as a last-minute bonfire. As a matter of fact, Dr. Eisenschimmel, who, as you know, was no great lover of F. Stanton, Lincoln's war secretary, did comment to me on what he called Stanton's conspicuous disinterest in apprehending Benjamin alive. But then, in general, there was a stumble-footed pursuit of Lincoln's assassins, and certainly no reason to believe that those in charge did a better job before they had the tremendous incentive of Lincoln's murder to spur them on. But, of course, this could be projected into the realms of wildest fantasy. On some occasions, both Stanton and Benjamin used the same double spies. Both men had about them an aura of mystery and suspicion. A secret meeting of the two would make good fiction, but there's absolutely nothing to substantiate such a thing. It is a fact that vitally important documents and information are missing, but then the heads of a dying cause fleeing from troops sent to capture them would not neatly catalog and file such papers. When it is said that the complete history of the Confederacy was buried with Benjamin. Historians mean that Benjamin knew many things he never put to paper or chose not to pass along to posterity. He closed the book on a vital part of Confederate history when he refused to discuss the war during the last years of his life. But judging from some of the letters I've received, there seems to be a misconception that Benjamin never mentioned conditions in the South after he left and escaped to England. True, he did not permit himself to be drawn into any post-mortem, and he did advise Jefferson Davis not to reply publicly to one of his bitterest detractors. But he wrote several letters home to his sisters and brothers in the States, one, in fact, that could be used as a pattern for some of the thinking in the South today. At the height of the Reconstruction period, he wrote, and I quote, If the Southern states are allowed without interference to regulate the transition of the Negro from his former state to that of a freedman, they will eventually work out the problem successfully, though with great difficulty. And I doubt now that the recuperative energy of the people would restore a large share of their material prosperity much sooner than is generally believed. But if they are obstructed and thwarted by the fanatics, and if external influences are brought to bear on the Negro, I shudder for the bitter future which is in store for my unhappy country. Now, I do not mean by this to present Benjamin as a great friend of the Negro. He was a slave owner, he defended the institution of slavery, and he recommended eventual emancipation only as a last resort for slaves who were to be thrown in the battle 
in the last part of the war. But he did recognize that the freedman presented a problem to both the North and the South. Realist that he was, however, he knew that the voice of an expatriate who had fled the South would have no weight. So he commented only to his immediate family with strict injunctions not to make his letters public. And it's interesting to note that he made it clear in his letters that his references to my country still meant the South. In one of the few cases touching on the Civil War that he handled after he was established as a barrister in England, that's the United States versus McRae, he successfully fought the American government's efforts to get an accounting of, of Confederate funds that McRae, who was one of Benjamin's former agents, was alleged to have kept for himself. Benjamin repeatedly referred to the two countries, implying that the Confederacy was not legally dead. I ran into Pete Long on the street a few months ago and casually mentioned that Judah Benjamin had put up a substantial sum of money to back the original Ku Klux Klan. Well, Pete didn't seem overwhelmed by this statement. Well, I thought I did detect a slight twitch in his beard, which just possibly might have indicated that at long last I'd hit on a bit of history in which he was not intimately familiar. Well, on this remote chance, let me explain how Benjamin got involved in the Klan. In 1867, when Benjamin was rebuilding his fortune in London, Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate wizard of the saddle, was asked to become the Ku Klux Klan's Grand Dragon. But he had some misgivings. The sheeted night riders were getting out of hand. But cooler heads thought that Forrest, who was a stern disciplinarian during the war, could whip them into line. He finally agreed to tackle a job, but he had to face up to one reality. It would take money. And money was next to non-existent among the impoverished white gentry. He looked to for support. He couldn't call on Lee or Davis. But he felt he had to cleanse the clan of the criminal element that had taken refuge under his white robe. So Forrest turned to one of his former comrades in arms, General John H. Morgan, who was then the second grand dragon of the clan's realm of Alabama. And Morgan had a friend who believed he had the answer. During the early days of the Confederacy, when the capital was in Montgomery, Bishop Richard H. Wilmer had come to know the then Attorney General, Judah Benjamin. After the war, there were stories that Benjamin had made off of what was left of the Confederacy gold when he fled to Europe. And it was common knowledge that Benjamin's wife was living in luxury in Paris, now, whether the good bishop believed any of this or not is immaterial. He did suggest a simple plan, which was to go where money was to be had and make a bid for something. General Forrest liked the idea, and he managed to scrape together passage money for Bishop Wilmer. And for the record, all evidence I've found indicates that Benjamin took with him to England only about $500 in gold in the shoulders of his frock coat. His affluence was 
partly due to the proceeds of the sale of cotton, which he had the foresight to ship through the Union blockade during the war. The bishop's idea was good, but his timing was bad. He arrived in London just after the banking firm of Over and Gurney and Company went broke, taking with it all of Benjamin's ready cash. But Bishop Wilmer apparently knew his man, and he also knew that several of Benjamin's brothers and sisters were still in the South, where life was no bed of roses for the families of ex-rebel leaders. It must have been quite a pitch. For the bishop reported, almost gloatingly, that he was careful not to mention General Joe Johnson, Benjamin's bitter enemy, who apparently had either introduced the bishop to Benjamin or had some other association that the bishop thought it unwise to bring up. And neither did he mention persons he referred to as, and I quote, others of the late Confederacy whose names might be distasteful to Mr. Benjamin. And I quote again. He, that's Benjamin, listened enthralled to my recital of the horrors the bishop wrote, and was sympathetic with the power the Klan was exerting and the necessity for keeping the Negroes controlled. Benjamin, he said, admitted ruefully that he was without surplus funds to aid the cause. But he bade the bishop be of good cheer, and I quote, while he consulted a few friends and colleagues. Now, piecing together the movements of a man who did everything in his power to make sure that no biography would ever be written about him is not an easy task, especially after almost a century has elapsed. But the diaries, the memoirs, and the letters of other Confederate expatriates known to have been in London at that time uncover no mention of any loan to Benjamin. Bishop Wilmer mentioned that Benjamin was absent from the city for a short time while the bishop cooled his heels in London. But when he contacted Benjamin later, he received, in his own words, quote, a substantial fund with which to buy horses, equipment, and firearms for the clan. Now, Benjamin's closest friend in Europe at that time was the banker Erlanger. And it's possible, well, possible, but not provable, that Benjamin borrowed the money from him. The bishop wrote that, and I quote, Several years later, the ladies of Alabama raised money by festivals, oyster suppers, and bazaars to repay Benjamin. No mention of this is to be found in any of the diaries of the southern ladies, nor is there any record that the money was paid to any of Benjamin's brothers or sisters in America. Benjamin himself left no records. If the money did go for firearms, as the bishop indicated, it would have been indiscreet to mention the fact that the diamond, even in the South, for the stringent anti-Klan laws that eventually broke up the original Klan, after Forrest officially disbanded it, would have imposed heavy fines and jail sentences on anyone involved. It is ironic that Benjamin's descendants his brothers and his sister's family, lived to see a new Ku Klux Klan arise in the United States to preach hatred against Jews as well as Negroes, a Klan that was the bad seed of the one Benjamin borrowed money to support. 
I said that I would discuss Benjamin not chronologically, but on the basis of interest in the various stages of his career. Let me add that by far the most letters came from lawyers, for whom Benjamin's life seems to have a particular fascination. Perhaps it is because one of his books, Benjamin on Sales, was a standard reference work for more than three quarters of a century. But most of the questions had to do with my statement that Benjamin was offered a Supreme Court justiceship by President Fillmore. One of the letters demanded primary evidence. Well, I was tempted to take the fifth on that one because I don't know what primary evidence is. However, in my collection are copies of two letters strongly indicative of such an offer. One from a law partner of Benjamin to a New Orleans editor expressing belief that, and I quote, J.P. was not lured to the Supreme Court by the president, unquote. And one from Benjamin to his sister Rebecca saying, quote, I feel much easier in Washington City in front of the high court bench than had I donned the robe, unquote. I suppose all this comes under the heading of hearsay. But as you know, Benjamin left few personal records that could be considered primary evidence. The fact that he tried so many cases before the Supreme Court and that he commanded tremendous fees by antebellum standards should argue that he preferred pleading cases to writing opinions. And as some of you lawyers might be interested in reading about one of his Supreme Court cases, described as having brought him one of the fattest fees in American jurisprudence up to Civil War times. Murdoch and others versus the executors of McDonald. And now, after almost a century, Judah Benjamin seems to be making a comeback. Judging from the number of articles about him in law and secular journals, there's a new build-up in the making. And I think it's high time. There's a public school named for him in New Orleans. His old home in the French Quarter is listed in the guidebooks. The bell from his plantation in Plaquemines has been acquired by Tulane University Law School. And perhaps in good time, the old Judah Benjamin Museum will be restored in New Orleans. And maybe in another generation, his public image will again be that that the good lady in Pittsburgh wanted tall and handsome. And if the Hollywood moguls ever getting around, getting around to picking up an option to do a movie of it, uh, but that's wishful. Hopefully, too, future research will find that Benjamin was an adornment to his faith, a man of good works and pious thoughts. But somehow, I prefer him as I found him, a tough little bandy rooster of a man with what one of his contemporaries described as the map of Israel on his face, the one man in millions who did not fall down and worship before the shrine of the sainted Stonewall Jackson, the little man with a crooked smile who has baffled historians for a century, not quite a statesman, but quite a man. And now let me mention an experience of mine when I was slim, young, and single, at that early stage of my career when I considered myself a journalist with a capital J, 
It was my good fortune to have an opportunity to introduce the great Arthur Brisbane at a publisher's convention, and I really spread it on thick. After Brisbane spoke and we returned to our hotel, I asked him coyly, what did you think of my introduction, Mr. Brisbane? The great newspaper columnist said, well, Sonny, you passed up a couple of damn good opportunities to shut up. <laughs> Gentlemen, I hope I haven't made that same mistake again. Thank you very, very much. It was an excellent job. Now we come to that time in our meeting where we don't roast marshmallows, but we roast speakers. And who is going to be the first to stand up? Did I tell you I was going to catch a plane in time? No. Well, the plane will be detained, and we, we take care of those kind of arrangements. Are there any questions, gentlemen? Mr. Pete Long. Well, you don't have any brickbats at all, but I do have a question. But before that, perhaps we've left out of your book. But Secretary of the Navy Mallory and Confederacy, I think, summed up Benjamin beautifully in his description of the Confederate cabinet leaving on that Sunday in April. Do you recall that, or did you set to see that in North Carolina, the unpublished diary of Secretary Mallory? No, I didn't see that. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, as you know, all the other cabinet members and the president were in church and called out. Benjamin always took a walk on Sunday morning. And he came out of his house this day, took his normal walk in a threadbare suit with a smile and with all of that stuff, his personality shocked. But a few people, including Secretary Mallory, noticed there was a slight twitch. And then he looked a little darker than usual. And then his walk took a little different path. He wound up the railroad station. And he left on that train. Well, this was a pretty gloomy bunch of cars leaving Richmond. But Benjamin, in his evil ability to talk and work with people, puffed on his cigar, and they said at one time during the dark when nobody was saying anything, all you could see was the glow of that cigar. Somehow he held his cabinet together, and I think more than David, he held his bunch together, for good or ill. Uh, he spent a lot of the time on the train talking about uh, how to properly hard-boil eggs and the qualities of the sandwiches that somebody had furnished him. Uh, also, at one of the very last moments of the Confederate cabinet, they found time to pitch half dollars. Now, you know, the only coin made in the Confederacy was half dollars. They're extremely rare today. They never were circulated. And he and Breckenridge were pitching half dollars at a crack in the station platform. I forget where. I don't know who won. <coughs> but the question I have is that in the, in the problem of this trunk, uh, what did you find out about the relation of Benjamin with the picket papers? You remember Pickett uh, got hold of these papers, later sold them to the U.S. government State Department papers, which are extremely valuable, some of which have been printed in the Navy a lot. But I've often thought that that rumor of the Benjamin trunk really involved the picket papers. Uh, no, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that there was something in that trunk. It, there was a trunk, that we know, because these youngsters who guarded him, the naval cadets who guarded him, I found half a dozen references to this mysterious trunk. 
It might have been the same trunk. The later sold them for a good sum of money. I, I would not discount it, obviously. Arnold, do you have something? Yeah, first I think that you were a little bit unfair to Vina Delmar, because I think she did mention, that not that she was a nymphomaniac, but she mentioned that there were a number of uncles who visited her and her daughter with some frequency, and stay a while and leave a while, number one. Number two, uh, did you run into the situation about 1840 when he uh, started that plantation? And I uh, read a comment someplace that uh, the equipment that he got, which was new equipment, was used up to about 1895. That was uh, much more modern than anybody else used in the sugar plantation I think that was in Hendrick's book. He, he did. Uh, I would say he bought everything that came along, so it's reasonable to assume that, he, that the equipment he had was the finest. Yeah. Anyone else? Neiman. Uh, the wealthy one. ones in Neiman. Nyman. Nyman. Oh, Have you been able to trace the whereabouts of the sword presented to uh, Mr. Benjamin by the English bar? No. Uh, as a matter of fact, Mr. Abrahams, who wrote the book about Benjamin's sword, uh, is a little bit vague about where the sword is. He seems to think that it's uh, down in Bradenton, but I was in Bradenton, and they didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, there was such a sword. And I would take Abraham's word for it because he's a Philadelphia lawyer and I'm always afraid of Philadelphia lawyers. There was such a sort that I had one He had one daughter. One daughter who died, uh, as you lawyers say, childless. Uh, without a baby. Without issue. Uh, without issue. Yeah. Berlin? I'm one of the few hundred who didn't escape the book, so I'm glad I didn't escape the talk uh, either. You weren't dull in either one. But I, I think you're guilty of uh, presenting an Israelite on the side of the Egyptians. Uh, <laughs> without being uh, quite uh, uh, open about your defense, I, I think that Benjamin was uh, a pretty nasty sort of a guy for all of the ability that you described in which I granted. As a matter of fact, I don't even terribly dislike stupid scoundrels. It's the kind like Benjamin that I really dislike because of their great ability. I have a feeling about Benjamin that if after he had gone successfully to Britain, while his cohorts in the Confederacy had suffered for their uh, lack of uh, uh, fidelity to the federal government, that if Britain had gotten in some sort of uh, of a civil war that you'd have found Neiman either on the winning side or escaping the you mean, losing side. You mean Benjamin, around. not Neiman. Well, there's an identification here, Let me interrupt just a minute, just a minute to say that no Neimans fought on either side, but I'm sure we sold them some uniforms. <laughs>
this is hardly a defense. I mean, please. Donald, too, but. Uh, <laughs> oh. And you said that that's another story. This measuring is very easily. Then later on, you refer to this as his foresight, the wisdom, shipping his cotton to Benjamin, or just Benjamin shipping his cotton to England. Now, I, I, I just think that this is not a thoughtful defense of a man who first seems to me to have been a traitor to the United States, and later, at least, to have been the one Confederate leader who escaped scot-free to prosperity after his side lost. I think you should expand. Well, well, well i got to answer that. Excuse me. Oh, not fair. Oh, yes, it is. The reason why... The big point of the Benjamin story, really, I spent the whole summer and a good deal part of the spring on Benjamin. Benjamin had more farewells than Sarah Bernhardt. His farewell speech in the Senate, farewell speech in New Orleans, which we never returned again farewell speech for the Attorney General of England, and so on and so forth. Before he went to join the Confederate government in Montgomery, he proposed that 100,000 bales of cotton be shipped immediately before the government was formed to England to establish credit for arms, for munitions, for gunpowder, to fight the war. But you know the real truth about that, Ferlin? Zed Murrow always said, no one ever expects a war. Everybody gets ready for war, they talk about war, and they train for war, but no one really expects war, the Confederate government. And what he actually did is what he wanted them to do. Now, if they would establish that government, Mason and Slidell and Hotchie wouldn't make any difference what they did in England and France. They would have had that credit. They would have got those arms. It would have made a lot of difference. Well, I think the difference between the two arguments, one is talking on a moral issue, and the other one is talking about a, a uh, well, exactly policy. I, for a reason. Uh, I would agree with Berlin in many ways. I, I don't say that this is 100% uh, honest. But I, uh, and I don't think, believe in any place in my book that I ever offer a justification for Mr. Benjamin, except that Mr. Benjamin was Mr. Benjamin. And let me uh, say one other thing. Someplace, I think it was one of the Louisville papers that referred to Benjamin, and you must have written it, because it says, referred to Benjamin as an Israelite with Egyptian principles. And that was in 1861. Jefferson Davis boy. I thought that was a million dollars. He what? We can't hear you. Benjamin negotiated a loan to the Confederacy from England, $75 million. And afterwards, when England tried to recover that money from the Confederacy, Benjamin then was a Queen's Counselor and said that 
They would have had no right to that because the Confederacy was not a legitimate government. <laughs> <laughs> he was a legitimate well, was fast on his feet. <laughs> Mark, a direct question and not a statement. Let's have a question for Mark well, Wagner. One of the things that mystified me, right, and about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, uh, I play an instrument, and I play at a very flush charitable function at the Decatur House on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. And a lot of very fancy people were there, and a lot of knowing people there were there who knew a lot about the history of the Decatur House, which is one of our national landmarks. And uh, I was told that Judah Benjamin lived in the Decatur House. It was Natalie. That's right, he did. And uh, I became very interested as I meandered through the Decatur House. And I asked the uh, people who were in charge of the Decatur House about it. They knew absolutely nothing about it. It was as if a, uh, someone had pulled a curtain around all the information concerning it. Now, he lived in that house. He owned it. He owned, he owned the yeah. house, and he lived in it for a period of about two, three years. <coughs> no, no, not that well, you want to say no, but he lived in it. I'll tell you. No one <laughs> knew anything about it. Well, the story of that, precisely, very quickly, because the hour is getting short. Uh, he bought it. She, you know, she left and went to Paris with the little kid. When the kid was ten years old, he was elected to the Senate. It was a crooked election that he rigged with a very nice deal. And when he got there, he wanted to get respectability, so he bought the Cater House and he furnished it with the greatest furnishings ever known in the history of the United States. He had a party where he invited all the wives of the cabinet officers and everyone was there. This is the when he was in the United States Senate. And everyone came, but every only one who failed to show up was Natalie. She had gone off with a um, ma major, no, it was a German, the German embassy. She'd gone up, and so he had this beautiful big party. Of course, he was heartbroken. She went back to Paris, and all of these furnishings. Incidentally, if you're an antique collector, the furnishings of that house today, uh, Mrs. Uh, David Uley from Florida uh, got most of those furnishings, and they are available, and they are listed in antique catalogs. So the answer to your question is he did live there and he did own the house. Anything else? Uh, that appears in the movie version, which will be out next year. <laughs> <laughs> Based on your book. Huh? Qu Based on your book. Question. Yeah, it's placed on it. Uh, you, uh, I've always considered Benjamin one of the two principal realists on the Confederate side. You mentioned it briefly that he, his connection with the uh, too late decision of the Confederate government I wondered if you have any idea whether he had any hand or had any comment or any connection at all with uh, Pat Cleaver a couple years before. Well, there were many, there were many similar suggestions, but the I would say he was the ranking advocate of uh, Lee's, as I recall, it came uh, oh, within the last few months. William Davis both. Yeah, Davis, Davis. Davis. Uh, sixty-three or sixty-four. Benjamin advocated it, but Benjamin put a lot of uh, whereases and if and he was a lawyer, you understand. Well, that's sixty-four. I said, not sixty-three. Uh, 
many years ago, but in this century, when Brandeis was appointed to the Supreme Court, presumably the first Jew appointed to the Supreme Court, was Benjamin firmly offered a place in the court? Well, as I say, the only evidence we have are those two letters, and neither of them is what you call primary evidence, but I don't know what primary evidence is. There is no, uh, there's no record in Washington. The only thing we have is the letter of one of his early partners to an editor, and the letter he wrote to his sister. And the letter he wrote to his sister says he's much happier than he would have been had he donned the rope. Now, that leaves a wide area of conjecture. I would guess that he was offered it. I've read uh, many of Benjamin's printed speeches, including his farewell to the Senate, and these are as bits, pieces of writing, they're brilliant. But I don't recall ever reading any good description of Benjamin as a speaker. Was he an effective speaker? Yes, uh, he was uh, not only an effective one, but he, they, the words they used were beautiful. Now, I don't know what they mean by a beautiful voice, but they said that on occasion he would get just a little bit shrill, but he was most effective when he would lower his voice so they could just barely hear it. He was, from all description, a marvelous orator. Of course, he spoke fluently in three languages. Uh, Sid Durbin. Uh, did Benjamin have a personal fortune, or was he a man of means before he went into the office in the Confederacy? Oh, yeah. And did he turn over any of his personal wealth to the Confederacy, or was that held? Well, as nearly as we can figure, most of his property was in, uh, most of his fortune was in property in New Orleans and in bonds, which of course turned out to be worth nothing. We do find letters where he recommended purchasing bonds, and he says in one place, uh, this was to a client of his, he said, I hope you will buy bonds as I have in the Confederacy. Well, if he bought those bonds, of course. But he was a very wealthy man, one of the most, I would say one of the wealthiest men in the South at the time of the war, beginning of the war. But I, I don't think it was in cash. So that'd be one reason why he was also brought into Ohio? No, I think, I think on ability, and I think Davis had a, had a, had a typically political outlook. He said, you from Louisiana, you from Georgia, you from... He wanted a broad spectrum of all the, uh, the uh, seceding states. I don't think his, his judgment was good in all cases. In the case of Benjamin, as Attorney General, I'd say it was ideal. Brooks has a, has a question, Mr. Davis. Simon, I'd like to echo Joe Pratt's statement. I think the Confederacy could use a few more realists. I think you might have dwelled a little bit more on that. To say the question I have, you mentioned the restoration of the Judah Benjamin uh, Museum in New Orleans. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. There was at one time a Judah Benjamin Association that had a uh, the beginnings of a, of a museum. That's where this painting of uh, Natalie was. Uh, I asked them why it was discontinued, and they said mainly for lack of interest. I don't know lack of interest on whose part or what the story is, but uh, 
The only thing that they've salvaged is the bell from his old plantation down in Blackman, which they tore down about. Oh, I think the WPA tore it down. There's a beautiful picture of that in the American Heritage. It's a beautiful place. Hmm? Yeah. That's when the Democrats came in. Marshall Crowley. Here comes a loaded one. No, he isn't going to. Marshall, what's your question? I was just coming back there, Mr. You mentioned that he was an advocate of buying Civil War bonds, Confederate bonds, and things like this. Yet you seem to assume that the money that he got from selling this cotton, that stayed in England, sort of an analogy to everybody putting their money in Swiss banks these days. Uh, if he was such a believer in the Confederacy, why was he uh, sort of lining his back pocket on the case of escape? Uh, that seems to get back to Berlin point. I don't have much respect for Mr. Benjamin either, and that seems to reinforce my feelings. He was a realist. I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily. <laughs> No, I think he had no place else to go. I don't think he would have ever mounted a hoop in hell in the north. No, I don't mean that. I mean, why wasn't that, I assume that cotton was sold during the war. Why didn't he bring the money back into the Confederacy? Why leave it in England in case something happens? Why not bring it back and put it in a more Confederate bond if he was such a patriot? He was a realist. I have not used word, either the word statesman nor patriot, either in the book or in, in my talk tonight. I don't know what a statesman is. Uh, Senator Penrose describes a, a statesman as the kept woman of the politicians. He's so much of a believer in the Confederacy. Don't I don't even say that. I, I think he had no place else to go. During the war? During the war. It was during the war that he left the Senate. During the war he was... No, I'm talking about his allegiance to the South. Yeah, but why didn't he bring the money back into the Confederacy and use it in the Confederacy? He, really, in the Confederacy. he wasn't exactly stupid. We're just getting way out of hand here. Uh, there's several other little things here before the meeting's concluded. Uh, Me, in his very, very good book, too, excellent, I recommend it. Uh, makes a very startling observation on Judah Benjamin. Uh, you know, in his quarreling and bickering that Cy mentions with Stonewall Jackson, Jackson actually resigned from the Army. He sent in a letter and said he wants to be reassigned to VMI to be a professor and to teach the military and so forth. And this couldn't be that he resigned. So what Benjamin did, he wrote one of his flowery and beautiful letters and says, oh, come on, be a nice boy, don't do it. And Meade says that Benjamin did a great disservice to mankind by writing this letter and making Jackson stay in the Army because he wouldn't have the Valley campaign. <laughs> the war would have ended two years sooner. So this is a no body point for Benjamin. Several other things that are very important in the career, the uh, Andres Castellero case, um, the shenanigans of the politics between Buchanan and Slidell, uh, Ralph asked the question about the uh, Supreme Court. He was, they didn't want to make him ambassador to Spain to get him out of the country. And um, well, there's truth on that, you know. Uh, yeah. And why did, uh, did Slidell and Buchanan, after all, Buchanan never would have got the nomination, would never would have been the president without him. You study the 1956 uh, convention. And I think the last story uh, that I like before we dismiss for the evening when he was escaping along the route along the Florida coast, he was hiding in some shrubbery. 
and the Confederate gunboats were going up and down the river, and everybody was looking, and they knew he was there, and they were looking for him. And while sitting in this shrubbery, there was a parrot, and the parrot kept saying, Jeff Davis, Jeff Davis, Jeff Davis, and he waited until they got out of the way, and he flushed them out, and he followed the parrot, he knew that this had a parrot had a belong to a Confederate sympathizer. He followed him, went to his home, and sure enough, this fellow got the boat and got him on the boat where he went to England. Uh, he was a resourceful man. He had a great character. He was a great man. Uh, he was a brilliant man. He was able to put all these things out of his mind. Uh, he lived actually about three or four or five lifetimes in one. And Cy, how you did all this in one hour? You're a great man. You've given us a good speech. And uh, do I hear a motion to adjourn?